Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Hi. You know that movie you always wanted to see, but you didn't for whatever reason? Well, I call those black hole films. Everyone has them, and this podcast aims to do something about that. I'm Jeremy Lalonde, and every episode I'll be joined by one or more guests to watch a film that at least someone in that group hasn't seen. We'll talk about our expectations of it before it, and then our thoughts after it. This is episode 52, and I'm joined by filmmaker Jeff Kopis, who recently released his film Blood Honey, and before that made a film called Insignificant Harvey. And we're going to sit down and watch a film together. All right, so we're sitting down to watch Eight and a Half. I'm Jeremy. I have seen the film, but not since I was back in film school. Uh, and I'm Jeff Kopis, and I have never seen the film. Have you seen other Fellini films? I have. Yeah, I have okay. seen others, um, but not for years. Not for years, yeah. yeah. Not for ages, yeah. So I'm excited. And I don't know why I chose this one from your list. I think I was like, I didn't really go to film school. I feel like I missed out on this stuff. Yeah, I had a friend um, who was obsessed with Fellini that I lived with. And so I, that's probably how I started getting into all the foreign masters was vicariously through him. And he was a collector of the Criterion Collection. And yeah. I've since inherited that. Uh, no, I was excited when you picked this because I had just, uh, in one of my Criterion binge purchases, I just picked this up finally. Oh, good. That's fantastic. Yeah, no, it was... Um, and hadn't popped it in. I saw, I was, I, I did, I did go to like Tish NYU for like a little bit, I should say, and one of... My best friends are, is an Italian filmmaker, and they has, so they had like a Fellini retrospective when we were in New York. So I went to see a bunch of them with him, and he was like, he always said to me, he's like, you got to see Eight and a Half. He gets the best ones. Yeah, Eight and a Half's considered one of the best films about filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to get in too much about it because I want you to go in. Pretty, yeah, I'm, I'm cold, man. Pretty, pretty cold because <laughs> uh, there's a couple little interesting factoids and just behind the scenes stuff about the movie, but I don't want to color it too much before. Um, so what do you know about the movie, I guess? I don't know a lot. You don't know a lot? No, I really okay, don't. Cool. I mean, I, I know Fellini's style. Um, I know, as you said, they use it in film schools. It's like it's like a staple. It's like a media 101. Yeah, we never watched it in the film school I went to. It's just, I found most of the films that we watched, the best films I watched in film school was just through me and my buddies trading VHS tapes right. and DVDs. <laughs> Um, and just, and, and you're doing aging it yourself. <laughs> yeah. It would, but it's, I, I, yeah, I, I, when, when was I there? I was in the early two thousands. So, uh, so we were still getting, we were still buying, uh, there was, we went to film school in, near St. Catharines. Yeah. And there was this amazing, um, rental store called that's entertainment. Yeah. And they just had racks of, uh, at that time it was mostly used VHS and it was like a bucket tape. Oh, that's amazing. So you, so we filled up our shelves just with. We go in there and buy ten at ten at a time. Yeah. And for ten bucks, we come up with ten movies, and we'd all buy different ones. So amongst this, like six or seven friends of ours, we had this giant collection. Oh, it's incredible. And we just popped them in, and then slowly. So during our first year, it was all VHS, and then DVD started to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Started to take over, but at that point, we're just like it's a bucket tape. Well, yeah, and also like you, it's not like you had access to. Digital streaming, so you know, no, like that's, no, you that's totally didn't. So, yeah. No, and that's just, and that's why it was during that time. And I'm sure. I mean, I think we're around the same age. Yeah, yeah, we are. I yeah. assume. Um, and so you remember being a nerd at that age and having to actually physically look for stuff. Heck yeah, yeah. I mean, know, like going to Blockbuster to rent your movies was, yeah. or the independent store, or mail out. Yeah, yeah, or mail out. Yeah, which is what, which is what 
Zip was that ultimately, in a sense, became Netflix, actually, which I don't know if a lot of people know. Well, well, no, like Zip, Zip DVD. They're operating Zip at DVD. the same time. Oh, you're right. Wait. And then Netflix beat them out. Was that Yeah, Zip thing? was more of a Canadian thing. I thought it was. And then a- Netflix came in. Netflix. Was Zip the one that you could, like, get a DVD a month? Yeah, it was. It was very similar to Netflix. Yeah. It was basically a Canadian version of Netflix, where you could have different uh, packages. Yeah, you could either get like one disc a month or three discs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like, I think it was how many discs you could get at a time. Yeah, okay. Uh, and if you kind of got into a rhythm right, you could never like have to leave your house. Never have to leave your house, <laughs> but also just as you were turning one another one would show up yeah. and kind of like stagger them every two or yeah. three days that was and especially, awesome. especially if you were watching a tv show that was the trick right it was uh if you returned it usually two days later you'd get the next one i thought netflix bought zip for some reason that might be, they, they might, might have been, off on that. And bought yeah. out their library yeah well netflix i think still streams in the states i think not streams, but i think you can still rent discs from them in the mail really i think so huh um i just thought there's still a dvd market in the u.s so it's, I've, I've got a uh like I said, releasing my latest movie, Blood Hunting. <laughs> I guess a pitch. No, pitch uh, it up. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, on the 29th in the U.S. And we've had to go through all the DVD artwork and DVD special features. Yeah, Middle America And it was, it was a... hilarious because obviously we didn't do that for the Canadian one. We just didn't even like, put money into it. No, what do, they have? I mean, what do they have here? They have Redbox still a little bit. But Redbox, and then they've got all the big chain stores. So this one's going to Walmart and all that kind of crap. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of independents yeah. across the country. And so they have a distributor that goes into like... 390 independents or something. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, the movies that I've released so far have all, have all done crowdfunding campaigns, and so we've been doing... We, we pre-sell DVDs as perks. Right. So it makes our distributor go, well, we might as well do a run anyway. Oh, interesting. But I don't know if they would otherwise. Yeah. Just because there's not a whole lot of venues for them anymore. No. But no. it's so nice to have them on your shelf. Yeah, yeah. It's such I've... a vanity thing, because we grew up in that era where it's like, well, you have a physical copy of it. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of excited to get one from the U.S. It's it's true, actually. Yeah, yeah. it's totally true. And also, I'm always like, if other than if they all get destroyed, all the other copies. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, you still like, have it. DVDs hidden. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, in, like, scroll boxes. Nice. All right, well, that's enough of a tangent. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. All right. Uh, all right, let's watch it in half. Cool. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Finished and sat here in eerie silence. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty intense, huh? It's and it just gets more and more bonkers by the end and kind of nonsensical. Yeah, you know, it it it, ha- it does have some kind of a story thread. I mean, meandering as it is, um, it's like the but, whole thing's a waking dream. I mean, it's, it's no, it totally is. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's good though. Yeah, it's fascinating. Like, it's fascinating. It's good. It, like it's it's long, but it's yeah, but it's good. Like, and there's it's... moments that are just really fucking funny. Yeah, that whole sequence where he's imagining like uh, this life where he has all the women just living with him, <laughs> and it and it just gets bonkers and more. And there's and what's really interesting to me, especially because this is 1963, it's Italy, yeah, which is such a like a masculine bravado culture. Um, but it's kind of aware of the masculinity and it's kind of mocking it. It's totally mocking it. I mean, I, it's, I couldn't decide when I was watching it if, if today, in particular today, yeah. if people would, like women would hate it or if they'd appreciate the mockery of it. That's just it. Like, I think it's, it's pretty self-aware for being a film that's over 50 years old. Yeah. It's, as you say, especially in Italy at that time. 
Yeah. I'm you, even in Italy now. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's just it. So it's, uh, it's interesting that, and I didn't, I forgot that about the movie because I just, it's interesting going back and rewatching all these older movies. Uh, there's just kind of an overbearing, you know, male point of view, yeah. misogyny to a lot of them. Uh, so I'm often more often surprised and impressed when I watch something where it seems self-aware, uh, like this film does. You know, even you get that that, that one. I think it's the producer that is constantly just treating his girlfriend terrible. Oh yeah, there's a few characters like that in it actually. Um, but you also know that the movie is saying this guy is a buffoon. He's a clown character though. And he's a clown, so yeah. it's like it's okay where. You get um, Guido, Marcelli um, Mastroianni's character, who, you know, he's an adulterer, uh, who his wife seems to be okay with at the beginning. That's very Italian. Yeah, that was, yeah, but, but then she turns on him. But then yeah, you realize, well, you see what's under the surface of it. She, yeah. she kind of casually mentions it. It's like, where's your girlfriend here? <laughs> uh, and even you ask, like, is that his wife? I was like, I'm pretty sure it is. <laughs> so, then he just um, put his sunglasses on and smirked. But then you realize that it's not actually okay. No. She's... Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's layered though. It's a layered film. It really is. I mean, it's um, there's a lot of subtext going on. And what's in, so interesting to the background to this movie, just to give you some context yeah, please. for it. Yeah. It's, it's um, first of all, there's this fun little tidbit that I love where uh, Fellini wrote a note to himself that says, "Remember, it's a comedy," and he taped it to the monitor. No way. Uh, just to have with him at all times. <laughs> but what was interesting about just kind of the making and the behind the scenes of this movie is it's very much. The movie is almost the movie itself is almost this accidental product of the making of the movie. Right. Because what happened was Fellini literally had uh, a project set up. The producer Rizzoli um, had the money. People were building stuff because he often would start a movie with a script that wasn't quite finished. Right. He'd be working actually at this point in in his career, and the, the title itself, Eight and a Half, is just. Because this was his, eight, his eighth and a half movie. Right. Because he'd co-directed a film with somebody else. Okay. So it was literally a movie eight and a half for him. Okay. Because uh, at one point, it's, this is in the back here, uh, it had the working title, The Beautiful Confusion. Right. Which is actually a pretty good working title. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, went, they went with eight and a half. But so, at one point, he forgot what the movie was going to be about. So so it was it was... It was almost chronically, and as you say, the movie he was making. Because it was ridiculous. The the movie that is being made in the movie is this ridiculous movie with an insane budget, and he's building building sets, and he has For no idea what he's going to do with them. Yeah, it doesn't exist. And that's what literally was going on with him at the time. Right. And so he had all this money. People were building sets. He didn't know what the he forgot what the movie was going to be about, and didn't really have an idea. Had what he called director's block. Right. Um, and then at one point was in his office and realized that he was being a fraud and that he needed to just end it. So he wrote this, he wrote a hand wrote this letter to the producer Rizzoli and was going to give it to him. And then when one of like the grips or one of like the, the lower level members of the crew came in and was like, Hey, it's so-and-so's birthday. Uh, we want you to come out and just raise a glass with him. And he just did not feel in the mood for yeah. it at all. But so he goes out and they gave him, give him wine and a paper cup and they do a, a salute. They do, but it's not to the birthday uh, guy. It's to him. Okay. And they're all talking. It's like our, you know, our maestro. We're so excited for your new masterpiece and for us all to be part of it. And he just stood there going, "All these people have. If I if I fold this movie down, I'm gonna fuck all these people. Right. Like they're all gonna lose their job. Right. 
I can't do that. Like, right. <laughs> that's how irresponsible of me. Uh, so he goes back, he tears up the letter, and he realizes that's what the movie's about. The movie's about this discovery of making a movie. And that and, he has nothing to say. And yeah, and I have nothing to say. Yeah. Uh, and so he... So it's... it's, it's a, but... And that's ironically... The, that, that's, that's, that's really a cool story, actually. And ironically, he makes one of his most... Um, a film that people consider a masterpiece. Yeah, this, and one of his most prolific. That came out of just he kind of pulls it out of his ass. Because I guess it is authentic. In that, well, you in have that you sense, literally right? have that producer character in the movie going, I don't know, the fuck, just tell me something. <laughs> tell me something's <laughs> happening. And all of his actors throughout the movie, who he's flown in, who were like, what role am I playing? Like, what, just tell me something <laughs> about my role, about my he's character. Like, and he's just pretending that he yeah. knows, and he's and he's being this like artistic. Yeah, genius. it's your aloof, aloof character. Well, and the only person that kind of knows is the writer, who's just like, "This is shit. I don't know what you want me to do." And yeah, he's like, just do something, please. Just. Yeah, who also kind of, and he was praising him at the end. He was, you know, I, I love the like. Yeah, you walking away is the best thing you've yeah, ever done. Yeah, <laughs> I, I love the stereotype of like the intellectual writer who, you know, is. Um, he thinks that he's, you know, he, he's smarter than everyone else there and, and the director he puts up with, but truly he thinks that he's the, he's the real kind of, yeah, I has, think like the writer thinks he's a real artist. Yeah. And the, and the, he has that great line where he's like, it's a producer's job to lose money, yeah. which is such a sad truth line and makes me hurt for all my producer friends. <laughs> there's, there's a few of those in there actually that are, that are pretty funny. Yeah. Well, just even that scene when... Uh, he first kind of the first time he sets foot into what's like the kind of movie world of stuff going on and it's just I don't think it's all one shot but it feels like it he doesn't have a lot of I'd forgotten he doesn't he doesn't cut a lot no a lot lot of masters yeah yeah but it's just he goes from person to person just asking a million questions yeah and that's kind of what it's like for those who don't know as a director kind of your job is just asking questions absolutely and um, sometimes just as quickly as possible and I love that one little moment where this guy's talking to him. And he's like, oh, sorry, I have to answer this person's question. And he just turns <laughs> away. And he he says, like, one line, he says, I'm sorry, I just didn't want to talk to that guy. <laughs> it's like, oh. that, was, that was the loudest I heard you laugh during oh. the <laughs> I was like, been there. <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> well, you just get sometimes you get those questions where it's like, uh, this watch or that watch. And it's so important to the person asking you. And in your mind, you're going, I'm never even going to fucking see this thing. Right, right. It's never going to be noticeable. Right. Uh, that why it doesn't matter. Right. I mean, usually in that case, if I get a question like that, I just go, you know what? Why don't you ask the actor? What, yeah. What yeah. Uh, I mean, I think I'm just happy that they care enough to ask. Yeah. No, no, it's <laughs> right. It's like, you yeah. know, like it, it, it depends. But the last thing you want to say, you, you don't want to go, I don't really care. You pick no. the one. You yeah. don't want to say you don't care. Cause then it just, no, it opens this bomb to you. So it's better to go, you know what? I empower you. What do you think? <laughs> I have zero opinion. So what do you think the, the actors when they were filming this thought? Do you think there was that there was a similar scenario where they didn't really know what they were doing because he uh, didn't really tell them? Yeah, who was it? I think at one point he, I think Lawrence Olivier, he wanted to play Guido, uh, which is fascinating. Mm-hmm. It would have been kind of a different movie. Um, I think at one point there's something in the in the, the Criterion's literary notes I was just browsing earlier today uh, that I think like Marcello called him on it at some point. He's like, right. what the fuck is this? Cause <laughs> right. they started shooting some stuff. Yeah. Um, and at that point I think he was, he had, Greta was just, was a writer. Okay. Uh, and then I feel like it was fairly early on switched him over to being a director. Right. So, they, so I don't know what of that stuff they would have shot. And do you think they built those sets? Oh, I think some of it was just stuff, stuff they were built. I don't yeah. know. I would love to think that, 
Fellini had something with the spaceship and then forgot what it was. Totally. Just that, that, had that, would, that would please me in an enormous way. Yeah. And they just had them. He said, like, well, I guess we should use them for something. <laughs> uh, they ended up having kind of a circus scene at the end. Oh, yeah. Which is totally bizarre. Which, and that's totally him, too, right? Like, yeah. he's got circuses in some of his other yeah. movies. Yeah. Yeah. The whole thing just becomes... Well, it's almost like the whole... Like you said, like the reality and the dream become blended by the end. And I thought, Sue, at the very beginning about 10 minutes in cause he had been doing dream sequences and then cutting to back to, uh, reality and going back. But then at one point he started doing true waking dreams where the characters in the reality started to, the dream character started to enter the reality mm-hmm. without the sets changing and without the shots changing. Um, which is, I thought was very ahead of its time. Yeah. Like it was like that whole waking dream idea is something that I know I've played a lot with. Um, and it's, it's, it's neat to see back in the sixties. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I feel, I feel like people weren't really, they weren't doing that. No. And I don't know. I, I don't know if he was one of the pioneers of it, but I feel like he was one of those people playing with that kind of stuff. Yeah. A lot earlier than others. Well, and back then that would have, it would have been a big deal. I mean, it was, you were, you were almost, I don't say you're breaking the fourth wall, but you were certainly, you were certainly breaking rules. Yeah. Well, this and this movie is just that over and over again, uh, and it's kind of just a, it's such a bizarre movie because it's it's funnier than it should be. Yeah. Given that it's, I mean, now you would consider this an art film. Totally. And it is an art film in a lot of ways. <coughs> it's definitely an art film. There's no there's no straight linear um, story. But it's also making fun of itself. It's very self aware of how pretentious it is. Yeah. Um, the characters are wonderful. Yeah, I mean they're 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 all exaggerated versions of themselves. Even that the mistress he has that he's kind of brought into town and keeps at the hotel. There's a, this constant conversation about her husband. Yeah, like, you should really call your husband and let her know how how you are. And and she makes that one come once like I, I'm gonna get him to write me a letter. I'm gonna read it to you. He writes really nice letters. <laughs> yeah. There's just really European casualness to their affairs. That's yeah, again very Italian. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's sort of. It's funny. It's it's one of those movies. It's it's kind of it's almost hard to talk about afterwards because it's it's one of those ones that'll for the next day it'll sit with me. And no, sure. It, it is one of those ones that's harder because you you just got to kind of sit with it and, and start putting these connections together. Yeah, because it's, it's constantly it, every scene is it's nonlinear. Like every scene is is intermixing. Yeah, um, and things kind of mix together in time, and you're not sure what's reality and what's dream. Yeah, because you've got that uh, that woman um, who from his childhood, the one that's kind of the the beach whore. Yeah, I that's guess right. That's the best yeah, way to describe yeah, her. yeah. Who they used to pay as kids to like dance yeah. for them and sing. Yeah, and then but then later on, there's almost like there's an allegory between her and his kept woman, right? Where she's singing, and you kind of get a sense like it was a so is that like it repeating itself, right? Because there's even that great moment when uh, they go into that waking dream where his mistress and his wife start talking to each other. Yeah, right. And she's, it's and fantasy. she's like, oh, I'm, I, I dress for... And she's like, oh, you look great. He's like, well, yeah. I'm pretty trashy. <laughs> he, it was his fantasy. That was, that, that was, I mean, that was, for me, the funniest part of the movie. That was like a 10-minute sequence. where he, So it was, long. It was his fantasy of his, like, perfect adulteral word, world. Where he had, you know, all of his women... <laughs> and they were all literally pampering him yeah. and like bathing him and feeding him and and, and, then, they, and then they turn on him and then they turn on him but then it turns back yeah and then there's almost this common like oh this happens every day yeah like every so <laughs> once a day they give him shit and then they go back to just 
being his. Fantasy. I quite like that scene. I I like that they he had had the flashback to him as a child at like maybe an orphanage. Yeah, and having like a wine bath. Yeah, like a wine bath. Like it was a bunch of it was really well done. And then an hour later, when he uh, when he has his fantasy, it's there again. It's there again. It's intertwined. But instead of being a, a kid, he's now an adult. And they're they're carrying him like they did as a kid in like the sheets. It takes like all ten women to carry him to bed. Yeah, it's interesting because it's got this big grand scope. There's these scenes where you've got like a hundred extras or more, um, but then it's also very much. It all just kind of takes place at almost a, a resort. Yeah, I think it's community. a I think it's a wellness spa. Yeah, it's fairly isolated. So uh, they they wore the budget well, whatever it was. Um, Unless they built that spaceship. <laughs> Unless they built that spaceship, which I want to believe was for his other movie. Yeah, maybe. Or it was a model, but it looked it looked like it was to scale. Yeah, hilarious. Yeah, I'd love to know that, actually. That's true. Well, that have, was great, man. Have you seen the, um, uh, I think it was Rob Marshall, uh, Nine? It was a musical that's based basically on Eight and a Half. No. Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis plays the... The Maestro character. I don't think so. I think Judy Dench is in it. When I haven't seen it, it either. When did it come out? It came out a couple of years ago. Okay. Uh, Nicole Kidman, I believe, is in it. I think, um... Oh. Brain's fried. Yeah. Uh, but it's got a laundry list of great female actors. Yeah, yeah, it. yeah. Uh, and it's based... Because there was a Broadway musical uh, called Nine based on this. And I think... I want to say it was Rob Marshall adapted it. Right. To, uh, and it was a full musical. Full musical. Daniel Day-Lewis was the lead. And he's a great... When you look he's at a, this, you're like, a, yeah. it's perfect. Yeah. Perfect, perfect casting. So this watching this again makes me want to go back and revisit it and see how they... Uh, yeah, I'd love to look for that movie. That's interesting. I'm surprised. Yeah, it's interesting. And then there's other... I mean, it's been... It's one of those movies that I know like heavily influenced a lot of uh, people I went to film school with at the time. Right. Um, but it's certainly influenced a lot of European filmmakers. That's for sure. Yeah, and then Woody Allen's a huge um, sponge for this. He even there's a movie he made called Stardust Memories, yeah. which is basically yeah, which yeah. is basically just a rip off of Eight and a Half. Yeah, totally. Uh, and you know he fully admits that, uh, and the comedy version of Eight and a Half. Yeah, we're done being black and white and everything. Yeah, yeah. Do you think at the time this type of dark comedy was new? I, I think so. In this, in this form, in particular, I mean, he's touching on some pretty big issues, actually. If you think about it, he's touching on he's touching on adultery and sexism and feminism and. Um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's it's a lot more meta than a lot of the films of this time, and, and being and how self aware it is. Um, he's not one of those filmmakers that I, I, I gravitate to. Super strongly, like I really appreciate him, but I haven't seen. I've seen. I watched a lot of his movies when I was in film school, just because my my roommate had them all. Yeah, and so I kind of put them all in, but I haven't gone back to revisit except for for now. Uh, like I, I own this, I own the Dolce Vita. Um, I've seen Satyricon, I believe, but yeah. I don't remember. I ha- I don't remember it. Yeah. Um, and and it kind of makes me want to dive back into them, but. Uh, it's it's one, he's one of those filmmakers. This one's different because it's, it's it's got those great light well, it's, comical it's funny. to it. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, but um, but a lot of it, I don't know if you feel this way, but it's like the one thing I always hate about 
certain older movies is I'm like, it feels like homework going back. Well, it is. It's a, it's it. a, it's really, I mean, there are, I'm there, there are films, uh, yeah. and, and they're just because they're nonlinear. So they're, yeah, they're, they're hard to follow. So you have to be in a certain headspace to do it. You're right. It is. It does sometimes feel like a bit of homework. Yeah. And, and I yeah. want to try to avoid, especially, you know, you're getting older, your free time is, is less of yeah. a yeah. thing. You're like, I don't want to watch things that feel like homework. Yeah. But then I also, I'm, I'm often surprised by, uh, how often I'll, now that I'm probably older and a little bit more mature and that I start watching it, I'm like, oh, this doesn't feel like homework. I'm actually really enjoying it. Well, this. exactly. It's one of the things I love about film festivals, actually. Because uh, I was, you know, you go to the markets at these different festivals and um, I always force myself to see movies. But um, often I won't be able to see the movies that are the mainstream movies because I've been too busy doing meetings and pitches. And so I'll end up just having a moment. I'll, like, yeah. I'll see like a window of like an hour and a half of like, I'm just going to see whatever is playing. And I love that because it forces me to see films I never would go yeah, see. Yeah, I love doing that too. Because sometimes too, especially whether it's TIFF and it's just there's so much stuff playing, you should be like, there's got to be something playing now. I'll go see this. Yeah. And you'll yeah. discover something great. And yeah. If, and if it's not good, you walk out and you go yeah. to the next thing. And TIFF is particularly easy because you have the whole industry screenings. Yeah. Um, whereas, yeah, some of them it's a little hard. I mean, Berlin, you kind of have that. And, and, but, um, but also I'd argue that it's like there's a lot of times – the only time you're going to see that movie is at a festival sometimes. Yeah. You know, cause some movies don't end up getting, uh, you know, distribution at all, uh, let alone a wide release. Yeah. And if they release. do they're you know, if they get somehow get a, uh, an Amazon or Netflix or whatever, they're lost amidst. Yeah. Uh, you know, titles that you've seen advertising for and just human nature, you, you know, you end up watching those. Yeah. There's so, tons of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. But I found even just going through like one filmmaker that I never discovered until just like in the last year, not discovered, I knew he existed. Uh, but Kurosawa was a giant black hole for totally. me. Yeah. And so I just started watching his films last year and he's one of my new favorites. Yeah. Yeah. He's a pretty cool filmmaker. I agree with you. Yeah. Mostly cause I just never expected his films to be as entertaining as they are and as fun and funny yeah. and charming. Yeah. And they move. Yeah, there's 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 a story. Well, he's and he because he's, you know, I think a lot more than kind of the foreign masters is heavily influenced by Western films. Yeah, of the time, which is another thing I wasn't really thinking about or expecting. So that was that was a really pleasant surprise to uh, to discover him and just realize how much I enjoy enjoy him because I kind of avoided him too, uh, probably just because some of his movies are super long. Yeah, I, I don't. I'm not. I used to really like him. I actually haven't seen one of his movies in quite a long time. I'd like, love to go back and see one of his flicks, actually. It's good. Did another one of these and watch one of his movies. Yeah, they're great. Yeah, yeah, we did... Uh, he's probably the filmmaker we've done most on the podcast. We've done uh, Seven Samurai, Rashomon, and The Hidden Fortress. Right. So, uh... Yeah, and Seven Samurai's a great, it's a great movie. So good. Yeah, we did yeah. a back-to-back episode of that and Magnificent Seven, the original. No way. Which is fun, because I hadn't seen either. So it was yeah. great to watch both of them. That's Both wonderful. Back to back, which is fun and interesting. Cool, man. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I got to percolate on that one. <laughs> no, it's true. It's a hard <laughs> it's one. It's a percolator. To just yeah, sit and talk about. It. Yeah, it is. It's uh, it was really good though. It was. There was there was not a lot of time in it when I was completely losing focus. No, you know? like it was. It kept me relatively engaged. Yeah, and it's beautiful to look at. Too. It's gorgeous. I mean, it's yeah. I mean, his, the cinematography and his. His visual style, obviously, um, is is in itself kind of phenomenal. Yeah. Um, he, he definitely is one of those filmmakers that every frame is a painting. A painting. Yeah. Uh, you can see that for sure. Yeah, the score. And the score, I don't know if you could 
you know, if you went back and listened to it again, you could probably pick out the pieces. Uh, same composer as The Godfather. Um, no way. Nina, I'm not going to get the last okay. name right. That but, makes sense, actually. But sure. there's a couple pieces that you go, oh, that's that. Sure. Uh, or there's a variation off of that into something that... Yeah, yeah, about. okay, interesting. And t- to your point, as we were watching it, um, you were reminding me that, you know, like, Italian films back then... Oh, yeah. Yeah, they, they, they didn't shoot audio. So no, like, I, entire I'm sure, movie's done. I'm sure they must have shot some kind of rough, shitty track that they could use for editing. Uh, you think so, re-dub. but... Yeah, I mean, sometimes, uh, to your point, sometimes they just completely changed... The, the line. Yeah, he would. Re- yeah, it's, it's it's interesting because when you're watching foreign films, you're often your eyes are so focused reading the subtitles, yeah. you're not looking at the lips of the actors. But if you watch this movie, you can see that the dialogue is often out of sync, and that is because the entire movie is dubbed after. I don't even think he's really trying here that hard. I, no, I, because I, I, from the very beginning, it's like okay, this is not even close. Well, the technology it wasn't like what we have today yeah. to be able to do that kind of stuff. Like I know, you know, most actors get upset when they have to dub. A line. Yeah. But I guess, but also you have to, I guess you have to understand that back then this was commonplace for most Italian films. So these actors are trained to do that kind of thing. I also almost feel like it, it, it worked for what he was trying to do. Like I almost feel like he was looser with it. Cause I've definitely seen lots of, or a handful anyway, of Italian films from that, from that period, um, that are shot like that, but they all made a much bigger effort to kind of get it sink. right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think cause Fleeney was, different than others in that he would often rewrite the dialogue or just twist the dialogue so it doesn't often fit in the actor's yeah, mouth. Yeah, And the guy making the bird sound will yeah, keep, that's keep me laughing for the whole the rest of the night. What a bizarre moment. It was so bizarre. There's a bird that is, they're all talking about who is up in the forest and you can just you can just tell it's some guy in a studio. Oh, and something about... And they, they, like, probably even there, it's, it's live happening. Well, and they, cause they make a comment on how it's, it's... They named it after someone who was sad or the bird... No, the bird, had, the bird had to escort somebody to their death. Yeah, and it was crying or something, or it's yeah. like, it's pleading, or I don't and know. And they're all listening to it, and then you, there's just this great moment, and there's a couple of these throughout the movie where Michele Mastroni is just looking around like, what the fuck is happening? And, and he's just like the voice of the audience... In a sense, he's like, this is bizarre, right? Like, this <laughs> yeah, is kind what of what everyone cool. agrees, right? This is yeah. like, this does not sound like a bird. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's what I think I love about the movie more often than not is that it, it is like this self-aware, you know, mildly pretentious film. Uh, but it's in, it, but, but on it, purpose. But to your point, it completely makes fun of itself. Otherwise, it wouldn't be watchable. No, it, it wouldn't. It wouldn't be. It wouldn't be a great film otherwise. Yeah, the serious version of this film, which is why I think to. His point, he he taped onto his monitor. Right. Remember, this is a this comedy. This is a comedy. It's absolutely <laughs> yeah. You're right. Because if that, if you hadn't found that in every scene, it would have been unwatchable. Yeah. Grant, any any final thoughts? No. Again, <laughs> yeah, it's just percolating in there. Yeah. Um, the actress, the lead, the lead actress, Claudia. I thought she looked a lot like Sophia Loren. Sophia Loren. She's not. Because I looked on the looked on the thing. Up, yeah, no. I'd be so curious what else she did. Because she was actually like a really... I mean, yeah. she, she was gorgeous, obviously. But she was also, when she actually did get her ability to speak, um, she was a really interesting actor. Yeah, she's, yeah, the whole cast is great. She was very He's strong. the only, only one that I know of from other films. Right, um, Claudia Cardinale. Yeah. I'm just pronouncing that with a fake Italian accent. Yeah, that's really interesting. 
Yeah, I'm not amazing on Italian actors of this era, except, no. except for Marcello. Yeah, the one that I do know. I'm not sure a lot of people, um, Western people, would be, but yeah. Uh, oh, they're out there. I'm sure it's they're true. Out. Actually, it's true. <laughs> cool, man. Well, that's great. Thanks yeah. for uh, thanks for inviting me. Thanks for coming over. Yeah, cool. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Thanks for joining us for Eight and a Half. If you like the show, please subscribe to the podcast and spread the word about it. You can find me on Twitter, at Lalon Jeremy, and go to Facebook for Black Hole Films. Leave a review there, or an Apple podcast, or wherever it is you listen to this thing. And until next time, go watch something you've never seen before. Thanks. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat.